as I read Romans chapter 9. Focus of the sermon is verses uh, 4 and 5, but let me read verses 1 through 5. Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. And hear God's word. This is Paul speaking. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God and the promises of whom are the fathers and from whom. According to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for these inspired words of the Apostle Paul. We take him at his word. He, he tells the truth. He's not lying. His conscience bears him witness. He's speaking in Christ. He's speaking as an inspired apostle. Oh, Lord, we want to know what you are saying through him. And we pray that through the Holy Spirit we might know. Father, we acknowledge that these verses and the next three chapters are are full of difficulties. Difficulties about which Christians disagree to this day. Even in our own denomination, even in our own church. Father, we pray that, well, that as I stand here preaching, it wouldn't be with words of persuasion, but rather with the power of the Spirit. And we pray, Holy Spirit, through your word and through the preaching and through the hearing you might bring true faith and true conviction and a true clarity about what you're saying. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thus far, I have uh, set forth a view of chapters 9 through 11, uh, which exist as a unit, based upon the following two considerations. These are two considerations that I want to keep at the forefront, especially at the beginning as we are seeking to unfold uh, the apostles argument. The first is uh, the first consideration is that Paul has told us with respect to the gospel that he was so concerned to preach that there is a priority of the Jews. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. The priority of the Jews in what? In salvation. And that is fundamental to Paul's whole uh, presentation of the gospel. He briefly says uh, in chapter 3, what advantage then has the Jew or what Prophet is circumcision much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. And it's that thought, the priority of the Jews, that Paul uh, expounds in chapters 9 through 11, their place in the purpose of God. And so that brings me to the second main consideration that underlines my whole presentation of these chapters, and that is. God's purpose at the end of chapter eight, 
Uh, especially beginning in, in verse 28, the Apostle Paul tells us that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And, and there to the end of the chapter, he sets forth that purpose. He sets forth the purpose of God as something that is immutable. It's something that's invincible. It's something God could never go back on. If God promises, if he pledges to do something, he's going to do it. And that is uh, the sole confidence of the believer. It's that God's word is sure, that he can never go back on his word. He can never go back on his purpose. Nor is there anything else in all the world. The devil, my sin, uh, unbelief, you name it, that can undo or thwart the purpose of God. Now, having set that forth so plainly before our eyes at the end of chapter 8, there is uh, this great objection, and it is the objection uh, of the whole Old Testament, uh, the question of Israel. Whatever happened, from the standpoint of God's purpose or his promise, whatever happened to God's repeated promises to Israel as a people in the Old Testament, such as we read in Deuteronomy chapter 4, he's speaking to them as a distinct people, as a nation, as a family. I spoke to your fathers. I'm speaking to you now. I want you to speak to your children. Now, whatever happened to them? Were they simply set aside in the new covenant? Was God's purpose to them, his promise to them, somehow altered or forsaken? Now, since we obviously know that that cannot be, uh, unless we're prepared to say at the end of chapter 8, you know, well, there's this one exception, which Paul is very concerned to make clear there is not. The question becomes, knowing that God's purpose is immutable, it is invincible, it is infallible, what becomes of God's purpose for Israel stated in the, in the Old uh, Testament? What becomes of that? In other words, how is that purpose promised to them in the Old Testament realized in history, given the reality of the new covenant? What is the place of Israel in the new covenant? That's the question. And that becomes the focus of these chapters. It, it, it's the age old question. I'll say it again of the Old Testament in relation to the new. And that's that's a thorny question. We find the majority of Jesus debates with the Jews in the Gospels concerning this question. We find this is the most perplexing question to the early church in the New Testament. Again and again, they're dealing with this question. The Gentiles are brought in. What are the Jews? Are you saying that the Jews are now rejected? And again and again and again, the answer is always no. Uh, but this is the question that is asked repeatedly throughout the pages of the New Testament. But the, but the answer or the way that we answer that, if we say, well, the answer is no. The way in which we arrive at that answer is a subject of debate among many Christians. Even within the OPC, the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. I've been thinking, uh, if I were to preach this sermon or these series of sermons at General Assembly or at Presbytery, how would they be received? <laughs> uh, I'm aware of the fact that uh, a great many of my brothers would, would be at odds with me uh, in the way that I'm presenting this. And I, and I want to unpack that. Uh, I realize that even some of you are saying, you know, Pastor, I'm not sure about that. Uh, you're speaking of the Jews as a people, as a nation, as a family. And I am saying, yes, God is not done with them. And yet there are many who would, who would claim 
uh, to the contrary. Well, in light of that, and I, I really am in these first three sermons laying a foundation. And then when we get to chapter nine, verse six, we'll really launch into the argument. But I'm, I'm still laying the foundation here. And so aware as I am of the disagreements that exist with respect to these chapters, I want to give some historical considerations uh, as to uh, this debate. And once more, I am closely following Ian Murray in his book, The Puritan Hope. If, if you wanted to read a historical survey of this uh, debate, let us call it, uh, this would be the book to read for sure. If we go back to the reformers, that's where we all begin as Protestants. We could go back to the early church, but uh, and we often do. But typically we begin with Calvin and Luther. Now, if you begin with Calvin and Luther, uh, and in fact, some of you already said this to me, uh, you will realize that Calvin and Luther did not hold the view that I'm setting forth. They viewed uh, so much, by the way, hinges upon chapter 11, verse 26. Uh, and sometimes you have to do that. You have to go to the end before you, you understand the beginning. You have to see where you're going. Well, where is he going? This is the great high point, And so all Israel will be saved. Once this purpose is realized, whatever it is, God's purpose for Israel will be realized. Well, what is he saying there? Well, Calvin uh, and Luther did not view this as a future event in which the Jews as a people, as a nation, as a family, whatever, as a race, whatever you want to call them. The descendants of Abraham were brought back into the church. They were grafted back in. That was not the teaching of Luther and Calvin. And so you can say to me, and you would be right, you know, Pastor, Calvin did not teach what you're teaching. I grant that. Calvin viewed it as, uh, as the fullness of the church, as a spiritual people. I don't know what Luther said, but apparently something similar. However, and this is the point of the Puritan hope. The Puritans were the men who came after the reformers. Already in Geneva, now you can read uh, Ian Murray and you'll get these points. Already in Geneva, uh, Calvin's successor, Theodore Beza, uh, and then the men who compiled the Geneva Bible and its study notes began to form a different view that we could call these men the late reformers, uh, they, they began to develop the view that, yes, indeed, and if you read the Geneva Bible with its study notes produced by uh, those men, you will find notes on 11, 25, and 26 uh, that this all Israel is uh, looking forward to a future engrafting of the Jews into the church. Now, what happens after the reformers uh, you have uh, the age of the Puritans. And there was, Murray outlines this, I, I certainly don't have time to do this, uh, nor is uh, a historical survey necessarily uh, true preaching. And so I, I don't want to do this for very long. But among the Puritans, that became the emerging consensus. That's what I'm calling it. And that really is Murray's whole point in this book, The Puritan Hope, that among the Puritans, they had... Beza's view, Calvin's predecessor in Geneva, and that this hope informed their outlook on the present and on history. And as we get into the application of this for the church today in sermons to come, I, I, I can only imagine that that will be uh, what I have to say as well. This is not an, a kind of esoteric, unimportant point. This is something that is woven into the fabric of faith and hope and Christian living. It certainly was for the Puritans. There were two main points 
in this emerging consensus that set them at odds with Calvin. Uh, one was that the Jews as a people will be grafted in again. All Israel means Israel itself. They looked forward uh, to the church's increase through the conversion of the Jews. That's the first point. And the second point is that this would occur at some future date. It was a matter of prophecy. In other words, you don't get the fullness of the Jews through the progressive, the progressive uh, gathering in of the remnant. That Sometimes you find that in this other view I'm describing. Throughout history, this remnant is progressively gathered in of Jews, and therefore you get all the sum total of the Jews, all Israel. No, that's not what they said. That's not what they believed. They believed that what Paul was looking forward to was a future point in time when just as the Jews were rejected and the Gentiles were brought in at Pentecost, so there would be a kind of second Pentecost, if I could put it that way, in which... The Jews as a people would be called back in to the church. Thank God that would not coincide with the Gentiles rejection. I've said that already. And that's why Paul says if their rejection was blessing to the world, how much more their acceptance. It was this great future event that they were looking forward to. That was the Puritan hope when this purpose was realized. The Gentiles were brought in. Thank God. And still we're calling them. The fullness of the Gentiles has not yet been realized. There's the basis for worldwide mission, by the way. You talk about points of application. Why is this practical? We're still calling the Gentiles, but there will be a time when the Jews will be brought in as well. Now, there is also an important role of revival in this. Revival provided a category that made sense of what Paul was speaking of. The Puritans and their heirs in Britain and America, as men who knew revival in their own day, understood that Paul was speaking of some great future Revival, perhaps the greatest the world has ever known. Much like in the days of the early church when the, when the Gentiles were, be gathering, were, were being gathered in mass. So there would be a future point of revival when the Jews were gathered in mass. Again, there was the Puritan hope. And, and, and in essence, what Paul looked forward to, they were saying, was one great worldwide revival. Again, not just a revival in one nation, but a revival in one nation that reverberated throughout the whole world. And whether that happened at the end of history was a point that the Puritans did not agree upon. Was this the end or was it some great future revival and other things would come later? Well, I confess that I'm indifferent as to that point, though, as we go on, perhaps I'll arrive at greater clarity. As far as I can tell, I, 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 need, I need to hurry through this point, but as far as I can tell, this was the dominant view up until recently. Uh, I, if I were to think of it this way, so much of my library is Banner of Truth. This is Banner of Truth, this book. Uh, two of the three books I have here are, are published by Banner of Truth. It, I'll put it like this. If you were to go through your Banner of Truth library, which is probably at least half of my library, all of the men in that library would hold this view. I think that's a fair statement. I, I think it is. It, it was the view of the Puritans. It was the view of their heirs in America. You can read Jonathan Edwards. You will find him clearly stating this view. You can read uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, which I have been. You'll find it. You can read John Murray, and you will find it. John Murray wrote the greatest commentary on Romans. The dominant view. Re- there are recent challenges to it to, on two fronts. 
So I'm saying there was an emerging consensus in the age of the Puritans up until very recently. Now it's being challenged on two fronts. And as far as I can tell, this view has fallen out of favor in our own denomination. One is what I believe is an overreaction to American dispensationalism and its obsession with the nation of Israel. And we rightly react very negatively to this. But I would argue it has an unfortunate tendency, to uh, a negative tendency, to color our exegesis in a negative way. We are too unwilling in a reaction to dispensationalism to see uh, any future purpose for the Jews. But also a second challenge is what I would call a new consensus, which emerged in the 20th century among what I would call the redemptive historical school, who argued that all Israel is the sum total of the elect in all ages. They exclude any future ingrafting of the Jews as a people into the church. They merely see Israel spoken of uh, throughout chapters 9 through 11, but especially in 11:26, all Israel, all Israel means the sum total of the elect. Once the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, then Israel becomes complete, Israel in her true form. That's the redemptive historical teaching. Uh, Herman Ritterboss, uh, I would say, is the chief proponent of this view, and I'm not trying... Uh, To straw man this view, I want to give it to you as as clearly as I can in this and sermons to come. I'll give it to you in in, in its own words. Ritterball says, for all these reasons, it is impossible, in my opinion, to maintain the view of all Israel as a description of national Israel in the last days. You see how clearly he's repudiating what I call the historic view. All Israel, he says, therefore, is the full number of those who in the course of history in conformity and together with the true Israel of the old day, have repented before God, have believed in Christ, and have understood and accepted the true nature of Israel's election. The the sum total, the full number of the elect. That's what all Israel means in that teaching. You see how clearly and how intentionally this view is stated as uh, at odds with the Puritan view. This is the view you will find Uh, being preached in many pulpits or being expounded in many commentaries today. That's why I say, if I preached these sermons at Presbytery or at General Assembly, I I think, I have a hunch, I haven't done a survey, but that I would be in the minority uh, and that there might be a few heads being scratched. And so obviously in advocating for what I am calling the Puritan view, the historic view, and what I would say is the correct view, Uh, I I, I want to be fair. I want to spend time in the sermons to come interacting with uh, these things, again, in in future sermons. Another point is, and this may be of some interest to you, historically, this was a feature of the post-millennial view. Whereas the new consensus, so I am calling it, is more a feature of the amillennial view. Now, I am speaking to you as someone, this should be evident, as someone who is still learning. I confess that even now the categories are not altogether clear to me. Uh, So allow me the chance to adjust things as we go and let us seek to learn together, which is, by the way, how I always view. I always view things. We're growing together in our knowledge of the truth. But as you all know by now, there's no mystery here. I am decidedly amillennial in my outlook. And so the question might rightly be asked. Have I begun to disagree with myself or am I beginning to lean in the direction of postmillennialism? 
I'm, I'm sorry to say to any of my post-millennial brothers, I am not. Uh, but it is important to note that these viewpoints were never held uh, in rigid categories. Even among the Puritans, they were not monolithic in this regard. And so, for instance, uh, the two main sources I'm using for these sermons, Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Murray, were unquestionably all-millennial. Unquestionably. And yet, they both held to the view that I am, I am promoting, that the church would be greatly blessed when the Jews were called. A word on John Murray. I know I'm getting a bit technical here, but some people have said, well, you know, John Murray was post-mill. No, he wasn't. Listen to his disciple, Dr. Gaffin. He says, for bygone generations of the church, for instance, to have expressed more or less more or less unbound optimism about the spread of the gospel or to have believed that Romans 11 teaches a future mass conversion of the Jews hardly makes them post mills in a later or more contemporary sense. Uh, and in the course of that, uh, he references John Murray, who was all millennial to believe that there will be uh, a bright future for the church, that the Jews will be called, does not make you post-mill. It makes you a, I'm adding another category, it makes you an optimistic all-mill, uh, which Dr. Gaffin was. And that was the view I was taught in seminary. Though, how I, I must say, not to muddy the waters, Dr. Gaffin did not agree with John Murray. He simply stated that one could be an all-mill and believe this. It did not, of necessity, make one a post-mill. I, I hope thus far I've become clear. Thus, I conclude I have not begun to disagree with myself. Let me make one final point about historic postmillennialism. The great thing for historic postmillennialism is their view of the church, their optimism with regard to the church. They looked for the vast increase of the church, which would include both the fullness of the Gentiles and the fullness of the Jews. With that kind of post-millennialism, I am very sympathetic. But come now to verses 4 and 5. And their place within the unfolding argument. He's describing something. He says, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, and so on. We find him in the middle of a sentence. He's not completed a thought. He's not beginning a new thought. The reality is that verses 1 through 5 form one sentence. They form one complete statement in the following way. Paul is expressing an ardent desire, a, 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 a deep concern for something. He says, I, I could even be a curse for my brethren if, if, if only. He doesn't finish the thought. But if only they would be saved. If only they would come into the church. That's the intensity of the feeling. But what we discover in verses 4 and 5 is that the intensity that Paul felt, this continual grief and sorrow in his heart, arose from something more than his personal attachment to the Jews, though certainly that forms a major part of this feeling. In other words, it wasn't just that Paul was a Jew that he felt for the Jews, but that there was something greater that brought about this ardent, intense feeling in his heart, something which we might feel in our own hearts, and that is, that is something we can only fully appreciate when we take into account what he says in verses 4 and 5 when he tells us what is true of this people. This is how John Murray puts it. He says, the attachment to Israel is not due merely to the natural ties. 
It is accentuated by the place Israel occupied in history of revelation. Apart from this identity, the great question with which the apostle proceeds to deal would not have arisen. It it isn't enough, in other words, to look at his attachment to them. If that's all there was, I, I doubt, and Murray doubts he would have ever said this. But the great consideration is what is true of them as a people historically. In other words, it isn't just how Paul is associated with them by nature. That's part of it, but it's more importantly how God himself associated himself with these people historically. That is what brings about uh, the question itself along with the intensity of feeling with which it is asked. Again, John Murray says, Paul's sorrow is the reflection of the gravity pertaining to Israel's unbelief. And that is something that we should also keenly feel if we, uh, if we follow along with Paul. Something we will keenly feel. Paul is saying in essence this. In describing the Jews in verses 4 and 5, having described his heart's disposition to them, he's saying uh, that I have a right, I am entitled to feel this way about them. I know exactly who they are. You see, the Jews were saying, Paul, you're in no position to speak of the Jews. You've forsaken us. And he's saying, no, that's not true at all. I'm not lying. I tell the truth in Christ. If anyone knows, it is me. Because I know the truth in Christ. I'm an apostle. And I know exactly who the Jews are. And I'm going to tell you who the, these people are. These people I have such uh, an ardent and intense desire for. One of the ways that we could look at verses 4 and 5 is a kind of survey of the Old Testament, beginning with Abraham, admittedly not beginning with Adam, but beginning with Abraham when this family, this people, uh, began to be formed. You see him speaking of the fathers. The first father was Abraham. The great figures of the family or the nation of Israel. And what you find in the Old Testament, as I've been saying, let me say again, is that God was beginning with Abraham, pledging or binding himself to this particular people or family or nation, beginning with the fathers and then uh, to that family through, through history. That is the whole story of the Old Testament, how God dealt covenantally with this particular people to whom he pledged himself, the covenant that he made with them. And that is the one fact that explains all that was true of them. It is because uh, it is because not of anything that was found in them. God makes this clear many times, but because of something that was found in God's heart, he had a, a desire for them, a longing for them. He had set his heart upon them. And this is something that Paul contends is still True. That is the debated point, admittedly, but I am I am taking one decided position. It is something that is still true and it cannot be revoked. What we have in verses four and five strongly resembles what we have in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 11 concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. And Paul is simply asking here once more, what has now become of them? Has God finished what uh, has God finished with his people? Has he moved on? We find him asking that question in verses one and two of chapter 11. I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. Again, we ask, who are his people? We're about to see. 
Has he cast them away? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite, the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now, this alone should make this new section, chapters 9 through 11, immensely interesting to us. Perhaps you say, well, I'm a Gentile. This doesn't concern me. I'm not interested. Can we get on to chapter 12 already? But what we need to see is that the New Testament is not a departure from the Old Testament. It's so important that we see that. But that God is still doing now what he was doing then. Only he's doing so in a greater way with greater fullness. But what was he doing there? Well, it's very important not to just rush over these two verses. Verses 4 and 5. For this reason. The Apostle Paul is offering clear categories. Clear definitions. And if we aren't clear about these things now. We won't be clear about them in the sermons to come. He's telling us exactly who he's, who, who he's talking about. Paul, who are you referring to? You see, that's the question throughout uh, the ages as we debate this subject. Who is Paul talking about? Well, here he's telling us exactly who he's talking about. And therein lies the importance of these two verses. And once we're clear about who he's talking about, there will be no difficulty when we come to chapter 9, verse 6 and following in understanding his argument. So what was true of this people paul's countrymen his kinsmen according to the flesh he calls them in verses 2 and 3 he offers nine descriptors or, or nine distinctive privileges so many of them uh, which were outlined in uh, deuteronomy chapter 4 which we read earlier and if we had more time we could do a comparison and see how many of these privileges are enumerated there uh, very similar to what he says in chapter 3 verses 1 through 2 Uh, Only here, it's an expansion of that. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 2 of Romans, I mean. Let me just briefly summarize this, though this could be a whole sermon. First, he says, and this is the key point, who are Israelites? Now, I found as I was preparing the sermon, I kept saying were. Who were Israelites? and And I had to check myself. I said, wait a second. Paul isn't saying that. He's not saying what was true of them. He's saying what is true of them. Who are? Israelites. That to me is exceedingly important to recognize. Now, this is the great question. This is the one thing we've got to get. What is, who is Israel? If we can't answer that question, nothing will make sense that follows. Uh, Well, I could read verse after verse after verse after verse where the word Israel is used. It's the dominant way of describing whomever he's describing in these chapters, chapters 9 through 11. Who is Israel? What is Israel? Here's Paul's contention in verse 4. That his fellow countrymen, they are Israel. They are Israel. Oh, yes, he'll say not all are Israel who are of Israel in verse 6. We'll get to that in due course in the sermon to come. There is this distinction between Israel and Israel. I'm not speaking in a mystery. That's the exact biblical language. There is Israel and then there is Israel. That will come out later. For now, let us see that this nation, these people, Paul's countrymen are Israelites. They are Israel. What does Israel mean? It means the people of God. I could spend a great deal of time amassing scripture and reading them to you. But let me just summarize it and say Israel means The people of God. It means to be in this privileged position where God is your God and you are his people. And that's what you find in the Old Testament. As a nation, as a people, that's what 
Now you see, I could have said that's what they were, but no, I'm going to be more specific and say that's what they are. They are Israelites. The history of this goes back to Jacob. God was binding himself to this man and his family when he names him. He says at the end of the struggle that God and Jacob has, he says, you no longer shall you be named Jacob, but you are Israel. God binds himself to this man and then to his family. And as I keep saying, the whole history of the Old Testament from then on is the history of that family. When he says, you are Israel, that's what he's saying. What else does it mean to say that you are Israel? Now, I, I would note this is, this is something we've got to see, and it's something we will see in the sermons to come. There is a general and then there is a special use of words. That is always true, but that is especially true here. Paul is speaking in general categories. He's saying they are Israel. He's also saying to them pertain the adoption as a nation. He's speaking generally. He's not speaking in the special sense that he speaks in Romans chapter 8, the prior chapter concerning uh, our, our adoption in Christ, a spiritual blessing. But, but what, you, what you find that as a nation throughout the Old Testament, God deals with this nation as his son. He, he calls them his son. He tells other people, they are my son. Interestingly, uh, in, in Matthew, I think it's chapter 11, though I'm not sure, Jesus says uh, the, the, the children are excluded and others come in. Now, that's just a fascinating point that, that will have relevance in future sermons. But even then, as he speaks of Israel's rejection, he calls them children who have no right any longer to eat at the father's table. Notice that to, to them. Only as a nation, he called them my son. To them pertains the glory. God again and again revealed his glory to them, not to another nation. It was to them, I, I'm, I'm picking up the pace, that he, he bound himself in, in covenant. He made covenant not with other nations, again, Deuteronomy 4, but with this nation only. And as he stood in covenant with them, he gave them the law. Was there any other nation that heard his voice? No, only you. He gave them the service. He described to them in a detailed way how they could commune with him and worship. Not to anyone else. Only to them. And the promises. Especially with respect to the Messiah. Where do we find those promises being made in the long history leading up to the Christ? Only to the Jews. To no one else. To them belonged all these things. What else? The fathers. All of the great men we read of in the Old Testament, without exception, all of them came from this single family. Abraham, David, you name it. All of these great men of faith who embraced the promises, who obeyed the law, who worshipped God, were the sons of Abraham. What a privilege it is as Jews for them to look back on this rich heritage. You know, when Jesus says, Abraham believed my day and he was glad, that ought to have... That ought to have, in John chapter 8, made the Jews think, now wait a second, am I, am I anything like my father? The tragedy is they were not, as we see in that chapter. You look back at your fathers, you look back on your heirs, and you ask the question sometimes, am I anything like them? Do I have their faith? If ever there was a family that had a rich and storied history, it was the Jews. All of the fathers, the patriarchs, came out of this family, and yet their sons were nothing like them. But the great fact is this, from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. That's the last thing he says. And here we are speaking in the past tense. From whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is overall the eternally blessed God. Obviously, this is the great thing. 
And the, th- the one thing that explains all the others, why did God pledge himself to this people? Why did he form his covenant with them? Why did he preserve them, uh, though he dealt harshly with them at times, through all of those long history, uh, or centuries rather, the history of the Old Testament, it was in order that in the fullness of time that Christ might be born a Jew. He might come out of this stock, a son of Abraham. God's whole purpose for this nation was that Christ might come from them, and so he did. That's the great wonder. You read the Old Testament and you come, well, you come to Matthew, the first page, and you read this genealogy and you discover the whole history is summed up in this one person, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In him there is the forgiveness of sins. In him there is the fullness of salvation. In him there is the fullness of all of the promises that were given to Abraham and to his sons. And so you see quite naturally and quite obviously how great their privilege was that the Christ should come from them. You read the Old Testament and that has to be your conviction. You come to the first pages of the New Testament, you see that Christ coming out of or springing out of these people. But also, as John says at the beginning of his gospel, how tragic it is that the eternal word of God was born among his people. He came to his own, and yet they knew him not. You see, if you have the Old Testament history ringing in your ears, as Paul is doing here, summing up in these two verses, you are struck and you are heartbroken with the tragedy of that. And so we're brought back to what Paul says in verses 2 and 3, the grief, the sorrow that he has in his heart for these people. It's clear as well that Paul is saying something about the glory of the only begotten Son of God. Not just that according to the flesh he was an Israelite, he came from their stock, but also that he's overall the eternally blessed God. This is not only the seed of Abraham, this is the Son of God who came and dwelt among us and in whom we beheld the very glory of God. That's who Jesus is. He's the Son of David, he's also the Son of God. And he's nothing less than that. And as I know I've been going for a while, I, th- I thank you for staying with me. I sense no a- anxiousness. I am just about done. What is the takeaway from this? We've laid the foundation. We'll be thrust into the argument next week. There's two main practical takeaways. One is that if we can say with Paul, I know exactly who the Jews are. I know the Old Testament. I've got it mastered. I'm quite clear about what God was doing there then we should feel as Paul felt. You see, you state what he states in verses 4 and 5. What, what, what is he saying? He's saying, this is why I feel as I feel. And if we know what he says in those two verses, then we should feel as he feels. We should feel this great sorrow, this continual grief of heart. We should sense as we read Matthew chapter 1 or John chapter 1, the enormity of the tragedy of the Jews, given the vast and the long history of the Old Testament. Not because we are like Paul, related to them by nature, we are not. But because we with Paul are able to appreciate who they were and who they are. They are Israelites. And this should lead not only to a feeling of heart, but it should inform our faith, our hope, our expectation of the future, and our prayers. Let me read a line from one of the Puritans who says, They forget a main point of the church's glory who pray not daily for the conversion of the Jews. And I ask you, do you feel this in your heart? Do you pray for the Jews to be called? Do you sorrow for them? 
I would say, if you don't, if the exposition of these chapters does not give us a sense of this as Paul sensed it in his heart, then they are of no value to us whatsoever. They're just a point of theological curiosity. If they do not inform our hope and our prayers. But we should also sense the enormity of the privilege. And I have a whole list of scriptures to read to you. And I'm not going to read any of them to you. But that we should now be called Israel. One of the, the amazing things is that this list that Paul gives. Is the kind of list that in other places Paul or Peter will give when he describes the church. Ephesians chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Second uh, uh, Corinthians chapter three, Romans chapter eight, these very categories he uses here, he uses to describe the church. And the question is, do we sense, given the history of the Old Testament, that these categories should now be applied to us? We've been grafted in, Paul says, into what? Into Israel. And so Paul, in speaking of the church, calls it the Israel of God. Galatians chapter 6, verse 16. Do you see nearly, not all, but nearly all of these categories now apply to you who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service, the promises? Well, we can't say that Christ came from us according to the flesh. But how many of these others can we say now apply to us, though once they did not? You stood afar off, Paul says, Ephesians chapter 2. Now you've been brought near. Do you sense the enormity of that privilege? But how does this make you feel about Israel according to the flesh? That's the test. That's the practical test. And what does the apostle Paul say? say? Well, he says this. You will say then branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well said because of unbelief they were broken off and you stand by faith. But do not be haughty but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches he may not spare you either. Therefore consider the goodness And severity of God on those who fell, severity, but toward you, goodness, if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. The test is this, beloved. It is how do you feel about the Jews? Do you long for their salvation or are you glad in a way in your heart that you've been brought in and they've been cut out? That's the test. That Paul will apply to these Gentiles who do rightly sense the enormity of their privilege. With those words, uh, let us come to the table together.